0: Please take out your Bibles and stand with me if you're able. Open to Acts chapter 13. Our reading as well as the content of our sermon this morning will be Acts 13, verses 1 through 12. Acts 13, beginning in verse 1. Now the word Antioch and the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then, when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and they sent them away. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they had reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, You enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated.
1: Uh, let's pray before we look at God's word this morning. Father God, we ask that by the presence of your Spirit, you would enable me to proclaim your truth to your people and that you would minister to their souls, edifying them, building them up in the faith, and bringing to life every single unbeliever within earshot of this message. For the glory of Christ's name we pray. Amen. Jesus said in Luke 19, verse 10, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. That is, the coming of Jesus was a divine search and rescue assignment. Not search and destroy not search and destroy, but to search and save, a a searching and saving mission. In John chapter 3, verse 17, look at it. We read, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. Friends, do we see this? I was once condemned. I was under the condemnation of God as an unbeliever. And in grace, he moved me from the category of condemnation to no condemnation. That's the gospel. That's the product. That's what the gospel does. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light. The light of the world has come to shine and to draw his people into the light. That is unto himself. The only seeker, by the way, in salvation, the only seeker in salvation is almighty God. He seeks, and he saves. To deliver them from what? First Thessalonians, first Thessalonians that's, a, that's a, um, a tongue twister. First Thessalonians chapter one, verse 10, "To deliver them, to deliver us from the wrath to come. to seek and to save us from God. God sends His Son to save us. From God, God saves us from God's wrath according to God's grace for God's glory and our own good. That mission, once Jesus ascended, was delegated to his apostles and because of God's regenerating work and his life that is in the Holy Spirit who resides in us, makes us, the entire church of Jesus Christ, ambassadors for Christ. This is the message. The only one who saves, he is the one who seeks sinners to this day. So the book of Acts is the history of how the early church understood the words of our Lord Jesus Christ when he said, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. It's the account of the vertical sending of God in the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ that moves out in the horizontal sending of God's people. Jesus' gospel message that what? Saves. Sinners from the wrath to come. Because God is just. He's holy. He condescended in Jesus to do what is impossible for us to do, and that's to live a life in absolute, perfect, holy obedience, to be sinless. From the womb to the tomb, and again, as I've said a thousand times, the fact that you're going to the tomb proves you're a sinner because the consequence of sin is death. Jesus came and laid down his life or he never would have died. He laid it down. And he had the power to take it up again. Making the mission monolithic. The Great Commission is one monolithic mission unto the ends of the earth, until the end of the age. And Jesus said, and lo, I am with you always. Until the end. Of which there will always be opposition. Now, in in chapter 12, we saw Herod lay violent hands on some of the church, killing James, cutting off his head. James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John. He had Peter arrested, but Peter, according to God's sovereign purposes, he was released by angelic force, led as he was out of that prison and to the house of Mary, the mother of John, Mark. When at daybreak, Herod had the guards under whom the escape was made put to death. Shortly thereafter, Herod went to Caesarea and sitting in his royal robes gave this great oration after which the people shouted, that's the voice of a God, not of a man. Remember? He received the praise. You're right. You're right, I am a God. Verse 23, chapter 12, And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms, and he died. History says he died five days later. Josephus, the first century historian, says he was struck with great pain in his abdomen. He fell to the ground and he lasted five days. The angel struck him and he died and some kind of internal worm or worms just devoured this guy. The judgment of God because he's holy. He's just. But, verse 24, chapter 12, the word of the Lord Great persecution, but the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. Now, that mission, that mission being the famine relief that they delivered to the Jerusalem church, chapter 11, verse 30. Not the first missionary journey, but that mission, okay? Okay? We're about to see the commencement of the first missionary journey. Okay, now with all this behind us, beloved, we know that God does not do things without means. In other words, he doesn't simply reach down from heaven to accomplish his purposes. He uses his people to do and accomplish his will, to carry out the great commission. By way of gifts, callings, circumstances, events, he continues his great work of seeking and saving sinners. Now, up to this point in Acts, Jerusalem has been the central place of focus. It's been the headquarters for the church. We have seen many leaders thus far. We've seen Peter, John, um, some of James early on, but here a shift takes place. In Antioch becomes the new headquarters for the church. This is Antioch in Syria, by the way. Antioch in Syria. Up until this point, the focus has been a city and a person. The city is Jerusalem. The person was Peter. Suddenly, the emphasis is now, the emphasis is Antioch and Paul. Saul, who is Paul, the apostle Paul. We'll read of another Antioch next week in Pisidia. But today, in Antioch, I want us to see four things. It's in the text. It's clear. The first thing I want us to notice is a congregation. Secondly, a calling from out of that congregation. Number three, we'll see a clashing. And then fourth, we'll see a conversion. Notice this congregation. With some distinguished leaders mentioned in this wonderful congregation in Antioch, verse 1. Now, there was at an Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius and, of Cyrene, and Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. Okay, now here's Barnabas. Barnabas is the encourager. That's the nickname given him from the apostles, the encourager. Um, he was a Levite. From Cyprus, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, which describe him in chapter seven. Simeon, notice called Niger. Niger, that means dark-skinned. Um, there's a place in Africa called Niger. There's Nigeria, and there's Niger. Then we have Lucius of Cyrene, that's in North Africa. And then you have um, Manaean, um, who had a, a kind of a, a silver spoon upbringing. He was a member of Herod's household. This is the Herod who beheaded John the Baptist. So I don't know if this guy was a foster brother of some kind. Whatever he was, he grew up in the halls of power and privilege. And here he becomes, um, he's become a believer, and now he's a leader in the church. A leader. is this amazing? And then, of course, there's Saul, uh, a terrifying name to the early church, Um, the highly trained um, Pharisaic rabbi. um, Also, he was born a Roman citizen. He's now the primary teacher within the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul. So here you have a group of individuals from very different backgrounds, ranks of society, places, skin colors, showing us how the church in Antioch reflects the nature of the city of Antioch. You see this? You have Jews, you have Gentiles, you have have Hellenistic, that is Greek-speaking, Greek-cultured Jews, all joined together as one in Christ. You know, James Boyce pointed out in his commentary, he said this, quote, During this time, Greeks did not like Romans, Romans did not like Greeks, and Jews, they they didn't like anybody. The rich despised the poor, the poor hated the rich, educated people looked down on the uneducated, and so on, but not in the church at Antioch, end of quote. You know, I find it strange, and it's uncomfortable for me, when churches distinguish themselves by nationality, or that they're, you know, messianic Jews. You know, as, as though they're distinguished, is, is special. And sometimes Gentile Christians will say, oh, those are God's people. Not any more than you are. Do you hear that? Antioch is a Galatians 3.28 church. Notice, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's how the church is supposed to be. And this Antioch church reflects the diversity of the city that is the diversity of God's people. Look around. This is what the church is supposed to look like. Gifted, uniquely, differently from one another and so on. Different ages, different personalities, ethnicities. Here they are united as one through faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. That's the church. In our church, the church as a whole ought to appear as as a mosaic of peoples. Diverse ethnicities, gifts, talents, so on. Now, that's the congregation. From out of the congregation in Antioch comes a call, verse 2. While they were ministering to the Lord, that is worshiping, In fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me. Did you get that? For me. Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. That that is, the Holy Spirit most likely said this through one of the prophets there. The Holy Spirit speaks, set them apart for me. This leads to the first missionary journey of Paul with Barnabas at his side. Barnabas is actually mentioned first. I don't know if he was recognized that the leader is the leader then, and then later Paul takes the reins. Don't know for sure. Some speculate that's the case. I don't necessarily agree with it, but do with that as you will. So thus far in Acts, as we've been studying over the months, the gospel has gone out from Jerusalem, right, into Judea, Samaria, into the, into the Gentile world, the church has been expanding outward, but, but not in a conscious, intentional way. The Lord has been doing this, taking certain individuals, connecting them with other individuals, i.e. Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch, or Peter in the household of Cornelius. But here, this is where the intentional conscious effort of the church to move out worldwide is birthed by the Holy Spirit through this church in Antioch. Called as they are to the Holy Spirit by the Holy Spirit for this work It's Barnabas and Saul. A new venture, a new challenge for the church out of this local assembly in Antioch. Remember, Antioch was a vile place. A perverted, twisted place, man. And God ordained to establish a church in the middle of it all. Isn't that beautiful? He seeks and he saves. Now, Luke does not want to, Luke is the author. He does not want us to be confused about who's behind this purposeful mission. It's God, the Holy Spirit. He doesn't want us to think that this mission arose merely out of some strategic planning meeting in the church of Antioch. This is the Lord's doing. This is motivated by God. He's the one who's doing the sending. He provides the guidance. He's the source and substance of it all, amen? He's the efficacy behind it all. Ryan was talking about the, 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 the um, effectual call. You know, a preacher can preach and call people to repent and believe. I have zero power, man, to convert anyone, amen? But when the Holy Spirit is there to do an effectual call at that moment, it, it, it's effective in transforming the sinner. Transformation is at hand. So he's behind it all. He calls from out of this congregation in Antioch, Barnabas, and Saul for this mission. Question. What leads to missions? What leads to missions? Is it in an annual missions conference? Huh? What leads to missions? Worship. Worship. Here they are worshiping. Why do missions exist? Why do we declare the gospel? Why do we send men to declare the gospel? Why are preachers called to, to proclaim the gospel? Why are missionaries sent to places in particular? Because worship does not exist there. They don't worship God because they're, they're, they're lost. They're alienated from God, at enmity with God, and he's at enmity with them. And the only way to make peace between God and fallen sinners is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the mission. So the Lord continues his work of sending, pursuing, searching, saving to the end of the age. The mission is the same. And notice they're here, they're they're worshiping and they're purposefully fasting here in Antioch. And this is in order to spend more time in prayer and seeking the Lord's directive will. And their fasting here expresses earnestness and expectancy. They wait on the Lord. The blessing that they sought from the Lord was more, more urgent than food itself. They're seeking God's wisdom. Lord, what would you have us do? They pray, they worship, they fast, Then, verse 3, when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Now, laying on of hands is symbolic. This is a symbolic gesture used to this day. There's no power in the hands of man. Amen? Amen. And don't let anyone ever fool you that they do because a lot of guys on TV pretend to have power in their hands. There's no power in their hands. This represents the blessing of God upon these men, anointing them. God anoints them, not the hands of man. Amen? He does this work. So this is a sign of consecration signifying the real touch that is needed. They need the touch of God in the sending to anoint them for the work. He does this. You know, the church can commission. It can license men, ordain men, send men off, but they have no ability whatsoever to anoint others with power. Only God. You know, sometimes men go into ministry training, they're full of zeal, they're converted, and they are just zealous. I love zeal, but sometimes that zeal has to be tempered. We call it the cage stage. This guy's so zealous that he's going to do really foolish things. So it's good sometimes, especially with doctrine, as they're learning great doctrines of God, throw them in a cage, cage stage, lock it up for six months till they mature, and then we let them out. Otherwise, they're a danger to others. It's zeal out of control. Sometimes with that zeal, men, some men, they, they go into training for the ministry, but they lack the gifts and the dis- disposition necessary for the ministry sometimes the church recognizes, yeah, they're really not gifted for this, and they fail to tell them. They may be sincere, but they lack the gifts and ability to carry out the task. And it's usually a sad ending. So there is an internal call for the ministry that comes from God. the the external expression of it is a man pursuing that call and then the church you see recognizes that that man is indeed gifted to teach the word of God. So they validate that calling. Does that make sense? Inward, outward. And the church plays a part in it. The church does this here and they lay their hands on Paul and Barnabas and send them away but the power comes from God. And notice who they sent. They sent the most gifted. Not the second string. Not someone who cannot or will not do ministry in their home church. Not someone who refuses to do ministry in their own home. They send here the most learned man in the world, Saul. And as far as we know, the greatest encourager, the Church of Antioch may have raised their hands and go, "No, don't! Not anybody but them." We need Saul; he's brilliant. We need Barnabas; such an encourager. You know, Jamie Franich and their family just moved to Texas, and we used to call Jamie Barnabas. He had the gift of encouragement. You know, and he, Amen. I hear it. Gift of encouragement. He's a Barnabas. Well, the Lord relocated him, and he'll carry out those gifts there in Texas. Go ahead in the humidity and the rain and the whatever else. Go ahead. Just kidding. (laughs) That means I miss him. So, see, this is not a matter of setting apart and sending out those who are the least busy in serving. If you want to get something done in the church, you usually ask those who are the busiest, If you really want to get it done, notice Antioch recognizing their giftedness, recognizes God's call on them that is, the Holy Spirit. They're sent. So the internal call, once again, comes from God. The external pursuit of that call is recognized by the church. Very important. So here they are set apart. For the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit comes in the name of Christ. What have I said a hundred times in the past? If you want to know whether or not a church is full of the Holy Spirit, what's the sign that they're full of the Spirit? Hello? A Spirit-filled church, what? Preaches Christ. They preach Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit comes in the name of Christ. They don't spend an hour simply Constantly talking about the Holy Spirit. The Spirit testifies, Jesus said, of me. They preach Christ. That's a Spirit-filled church. Not people running around like lunatics. Falling down, backwards. Amen? They preach Christ as we will see here in just a moment. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they reached Salamis, they began proclaiming the word of God. First, in the synagogues. Gospel goes to the Jew first, and then the Gentile. There they are. Proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. That's John Mark. We'll learn more about him next week. So they get on a ship, they they take off for Cyprus. They have this helper with them, this trio Barnabas, Saul, John, Mark go to the island of Cyprus. It's 30 to 50 miles wide, about 110 miles long. Had two important cities, one in the southeast corner, one in the northwest corner uh, Salamis and and Paphos. Had a huge population. This, by the way, is where Barnabas was from, of Cyprus. Island, off the Mediterranean coast. He would have known the the layout of the land. And what do they do when they get there? Notice, they proclaim the word of God. The primary call of ministry is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, and there they are. So here you have a congregation in Antioch. From out of this congregation, there's a calling. Holy Spirit sets apart these two. They go out with John Mark, a helper for the ministry, and that leads to a clashing. It always does. Verse 6, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus. This guy's a soothsayer, a sorcerer. He's your tarot card reader. This guy's a medium. A medium is a contact. And as such, he is a contact to the demonic realm. Satan masquerades as an angel of light. That's what religion is. They say some things about Jesus. You listen long enough, they deny the gospel. Oh, he can't be the only way. He can't be the only way. The Father, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So here you have a meaning. You know, the, the most striking thing about this magician is that he's Jewish. Something explicitly forbidden in the Old Testament. And more than that, notice his name Bar Jesus, Bar Son of Jesus. Jesus, a very common name in this day. The, the name Jesus means Yahweh saves or Jehovah saves. God Almighty, the one God saves. Jesus came to save to seek and to save. Bar Jesus, who, verse 7, was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. How would you like to be described like that? Man of intelligence. I've never been accused of that. (laughs) There's a man of intelligence. Sergius Paulus. So here you have this false prophet, was an attendant of this Roman official who functioned as a governor for the island of Cyprus, responsible, as he was, directly to the Roman Senate. What an opportunity, man, for the gospel, amen? A high-ranking official. What a great opportunity to speak the head to the head of the government of this island. And notice verse 7b. It was this man. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul And sought to hear the word of God. I wish people were knocking on my door to hear the word of God. How about you? (laughs) Now, what do you suppose is going to happen? As with every opportunity for gospel declaration, there will inevitably be opposition. So here's an opportunity met head-on by Satan through this false prophet who pretended to have special insight into matters. Verse 8. But LMS, the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith, So while Paul is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, he's interrupted by this false prophet. Why do you suppose that's the case? Quite simply, beloved, he knows his job is on the line. If Sergius Paulus comes to faith in this Jesus that Saul is preaching, this fortune teller who's on the payroll, no doubt, he's out of a job, unemployment line. So here again we see the power of confrontation at the outset of a particular ministry, right away, right out the door. This is one, to use Job language, this one is one who seeks to darken counsel. Beware anyone who seeks to darken counsel. Beware anyone who wants to stand in the way of the declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Beware. to make crooked that which is straight and true. You see those words? To make things unclear, to obscure that which is clear. You know, today, friends, today, Christians, church, the cultural norms of our day, political correctness, is darkening the minds of many people who profess to be in Christ. There's some Christians I know who believe that It's just as fine and celebratory of an event to to have and see two men married to one another as it is a man and a woman. Guess what? You've been darkened. Did I say you should hate those people? No. You do not support that. That is absolutely contrary to the will of God and the word of God. Darken counsel. Don't buy it. Don't buy it. You want to love people enough? You want to really love people? You love them enough to tell them the truth. You go to the doctor, you're loaded with cancer. Is it loving for the doctor to come in and give you a hug and say, oh, good report, you look great, healthy. Is that loving? No, that's a lie. All roads lead to God so long as you're sincere. Is that true? That's a lie. God honors marriage between a man and a man just as, as he honors a marriage between a man and a woman. Is that true? That's a lie. Don't buy it. Amen? Here he is to obscure what is true, to darken what is clear. What, what is worse? What, what, what could possibly be worse than trying to turn one away from the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or feeding God's people with false doctrine. Beware, man. That's why the warning is in James chapter 3, verse 1. Beware lest many of you become teachers. You know, many of you who are believers, when you were first converted, you had family and friends, did you not, who did everything they could to dissuade you from committing your life to Jesus Christ? Anybody? Yeah, of course. But, verse 9 love those butt words, but. But Saul, who is also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him. Now, this is the first time, by the way, that Saul is referred to as Paul. It's not that God changed his name. Saul is simply his Jewish name. Paul, or Paulus, is his Greek name. And he, Paul, will be an apostle to the, to the Gentiles. So this is a sign of the ministry, the ministerial work he'll do in the Gentile world. So notice he, Paul, stares intently at this fool. Can you imagine the look in Paul's eyes? Just burning a hole through this guy's forehead. Gazing at him. He set his gaze on him as he tried to prevent the proconsul from hearing and receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice Paul does not attempt to avoid confrontation here. You see that? He does not gently and privately oppose him, you know, pull him off behind a bush somewhere. Hey, fella, let's talk. No, there is no attempt whatsoever to maintain a spirit of political correctness in this scene. He lays into him openly. I love it. You love it? Love it. You should love it. This is the word of God. Verse 10 You are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil. You enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Paul says, You're no bar Jesus, you're no son of Jesus, you're the son of the devil. Gentle, loving. Actually, it is loving. It is loving that he tells them the truth, that he's a deceiver. That's loving. That's truth. And the devil has children? Did you know the devil has children? Yeah. Look, you're you're either a child of the devil or a child of God. Did you know that? But we're all children of God. No, we're not. In a creative sense we are, but not in a redeeming sense. It's Ephesians 2. We were once sons of the devil, daughters of the devil. We walked according to his will, according to his counsel. Amen? There's two camps in life. You know, Jesus called his religious antagonists, the Pharisees, what? Sons of hell, sons of the devil. You know, when it came to ministering to people who were who were who were weak, who were ignorant, who who were downtrodden, he was very gentle, loving, kind in giving them the truth. Those who came to oppose him and his gospel, he was incredibly aggressive. Now I'm not saying that's how we should be out there in the world. There's times for that, and certainly there's preachers who need to do that. That's a fact. But we need to be very discerning when people oppose the gospel of Jesus Christ. False doctrine, twisted doctrine, perverted doctrine, partial truths. Notice, when Paul says this, verse 9, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. This isn't his flesh acting out. He's filled with the Spirit, and he lashes into this guy, while this man, notice, is full of deceit and fraud. You know, it's very unfortunate that many Christians in our day are not accustomed to this truth. That is, pointing out error and falsehood directly and boldly. Because they'll say this. Oh, I'm not gonna... They'll come here and they'll visit here. I'm not listening to this. My God is a God of love. Is God a God of love? Is that all he is? No. there are Christians who are actually hostile to upholding the truth and pointing out error as Paul does here, calling this guy a son of the devil. We need to be balanced, beloved, amen? If God is only loving and not just, he's not truly loving. And the cross is meaningless. What was, what was met upon the cross? Let me tell you. Hatred of God and the love of God. God hates sin, and he crushed his son, sending his son to be crucified. You see, wrath on the cross met with mercy. God unleashed his wrath upon his innocent son so that you could be saved. Hatred, love, mercy, and wrath, they all meet at the cross. Justice and forgiveness met at the cross. Beautiful? Witness, testify. (laughs) So he's filled with the spirit. He lashes out at this guy. This guy's full of deceit. He's full of fraud. Now, verse 11, behold, behold, look out, take heed, check this out. The hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind, and you will not see the sun for a time, and immediately notice a mist of A mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. So here on display, beloved, is the negative apostolic side of ministry. This is judgment on this son of the devil. Blindness. He just strikes him blind for standing in the way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's temporary, by the way. That's merciful, isn't it? You'll be blinded for a time. I don't know what that time was, but... Notice Paul's words are vindicated, by the way, by the miracle that is performed. And that's why, by the way, New Testament miracles are performed. It is to vindicate the words that have been spoken. He's struck blind. So you have Bar Jesus roaming around, bumping into things, asking for people to take him by the hand. Now, that's one way to silence the opposition, isn't it? So here now, the one who attempts to darken counsel is himself darkened by the hand of God. As light comes to the one God is seeking, this proconsul. Light comes so that he may see the truth and understand the things that are being spoken by Saul and Barnabas. He exposes Bar-Jesus for what he truly was, an enemy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And light now comes to this proconsul. Notice, finally, a conversion. Verse 12, then the proconsul, what? Believed. When he saw what had happened. Notice now, don't, 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 don't lose me, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Notice, it doesn't say he believed being amazed at the miracle of blindness. You see that? That would be what we call miraculous faith, not saving faith. Do you remember in John chapter 2 how it concludes that many people believed upon Jesus because of the signs, because of the miracles, but he did not what? Let's see it on the screen. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover the, feast, the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. No one ever denied one miracle of Jesus, ever. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. You're seeking me. Remember in John 6? The reason you seek me is because yesterday you had your bellies filled when I fed a multitude, and you're back for more. You're back to fodder up. You don't want me. You want what my hand provides. You don't want me. As a matter of fact, if you do want me, you're going to have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. The result, many of them what? They went away and they followed him no more. What Jesus was saying, like, you need to entrust yourself completely and entirely to me. You must feed on me in order to be saved. I'm the bread come down from heaven. This bread, you eat this earthly bread, you'll be hungry tomorrow. You feed on me, you live forever. And they went away. So he's not amazed at the miracles. He's not amazed at at this blindness He's astonished at the doctrine, literally, the teaching of the Lord. Not Paul's harsh words towards this soothsayer, but the truth of the gospel. It's the good news. It's the teaching of the Lord. What is that? A man, a sinless man, who's also fully God, truly man, truly God, came to this earth, earth to rescue rebel sinners, Does this excite you, the gospel? Does it excite you? He came to rescue rebel sinners by allowing himself to be put to death on a cross to bear upon himself the unmitigated wrath of Almighty God. He was scorned. He was ridiculed, spat upon. He had his flesh torn apart by scourging. Grotesque. Nerves exposed. A crown of thorns rammed down on his head. This is what he's rejoicing over. He was crucified in shame, raised in power, raised in victory, ascended on high, and he will come back again to judge the living and the dead. That's what amazes this man. Does it amaze you? It amazes me. So here then is the message. This is the power. This is the gospel of the power of God unto salvation for this man. There's a congregation. From out of the congregation comes a call. The call goes out. The men go out. There's a clashing, and there's a conversion. There will be trouble. There will be opposition. This is what should astonish us. You know what should astonish you all? The fact that you're here sitting in this worship service this morning, worshiping the risen Lord, that should amaze you. I mean, that's why you're here. Amen? (laughs) You're worshiping the risen Christ. You walk by faith, not by sight. You've never seen him. There are a dozen different places you could be right now. Now, your mind may be there. At least you're here. So realign your mind. Amen? Do you not have to constantly realign the locus of your focus? I know I do. And I know we're similar. Because we're all sinners, but yet for all the believers in here, we're saved by grace through faith. There is no condemnation for those who are in. Christ Jesus. We're amazed by the risen Lord who lived a sinless life in our place, bore God's wrath in your place. That's why you're here. He was raised in power. You believe that. You're worshiping the risen ascended Christ who's unseen to your eye, but known in your heart. This is what amazed the man. It amazes me. It astonishes us. And may it continue to astonish us, as the world is opposed to Christ, opposed to the gospel, and therefore will be opposed to you. May we persevere by faith, in love, speaking the truth, even when it hurts. Because that is loving. If you've never bowed your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, and asked for his pardon and forgiveness, now is the time for you to take that step. He is your only hope in this life and in death. Repent. This is the command of scripture, if that's you. Repent of unbelief, repent of false belief, repent of crooked doctrine, and come to Christ by faith alone, and you shall be saved. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. He who has ears to hear the word of God, let him or her hear. Let's prepare to go to the table this morning together. Father, we thank you for the gospel declared this morning. We thank you that it is now made visible by way of the communion table. We thank you, we praise you for the mission of the Great Commission given to your apostles, passed on to us. Help us, Lord, to declare this truth. Help us to live faithfully. Help us, Lord, to embrace the gospel moment by moment, day by day, exhorting one another along the way, knowing that we will face trouble, we will face opposition, we f- will face spiritual warfare. Lord, it's a gr- it, it, it is sometimes a very gruesome, grievous walk. So lift us up, lift our heads up, strengthen your people today as we partake of the broken body and shed blood of our precious Savior, your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.